printed them off on the printer and it was printing only the odd numbered pages. So I had page one, page three, page five. I'm like, ugh. So then I'm like, I need to get my tablet. And my tablet was about out of power. So I'm just like, what am I gonna do? And so I went and grabbed my tablet. So hopefully it doesn't die on us today. Take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. That's never happened to me in like 10 years. So maybe it'll be the only time it happens. If it's only once every 10 years, we're going to be okay. I think we'll be all right. I, I put my foot in my mouth enough times as it is. So at this point, you just learn to laugh at yourself and not take yourself too seriously, right? So <clears throat> it's not devastation like it would have been 10 years ago or 20 years ago when I first started a ministry. That would have been very devastating uh, to not have your notes or to uh, not know what to do. Romans chapter 12. So I apologize to you. Uh, hopefully none of you will walk out and leave on me now um, after all of that. We're going to direct your attention to verse 14 uh, of Romans chapter 12. And we've been in Romans chapter 12. By the way, is it hot in here? Or is it just me now? <laughs> I ran back and forth from house to here. So, Romans chapter 12 and verse 14. Bless them which persecute you. Bless and curse not. Rejoice with them that do rejoice. And weep with them that weep. Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. In this section of Romans, we've been talking about how at Romans chapter 12, where, where Paul is really giving the, the duties of the Christian life in the Lord's church, in the New Testament church. And that's really the, the summation here, these various duties in the church Paul lists. And you go back to uh, verse uh, 9, and he says, "...let love be without dissimulation." That means not fake. Abhor that which is evil and cleave to that which is good. And he says, uh, abhor the things which would be detrimental to your brothers. Don't your love towards your brother needs to be genuine and real and not fake and hypocrisy, full of hypocrisy. And if that's the case, then you're, you're going to abhor that which is evil. You're not going to want to do or say anything that is detrimental to their spiritual good and well-being. And then he says, cleave to that which is good. Rather, what you're going to want to do is edify and build up your brothers and sisters in the Lord in the New Testament church. And then he says, be kindly affection one to another with brotherly love in honor, preferring one another. Here's the issue of humility towards one another. And then he says, not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. He talks about our attitude when it comes to serving the Lord. We ought not to be lazy in our service to the Lord. We ought to have a fervency of spirit that wants to serve and obey the Lord with, because of what He's done for us. And then he says, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing uh, instant in prayer, distributing to the necessity of the saints, given to hospitality. So he's summarizing really the duties of the Christian inside of the Lord's church. And how do we know that it's the church he's talking about? Well, we went last week, we talked about this in verse 4, for as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, and everyone members one of another. 
And he says we all have different jobs to do in the Lord's church. And by the way, again, we talked about this last week, the New Testament knows nothing of a universal, invisible church. All the churches in the New Testament are all local, visible assemblies. A church is the Greek word ekklesia. It means a called-out assembly. It's always full of saved, baptized members in a location, carrying on the work of the Lord in that location. The New Testament knows nothing of a universal, invisible church. It's always local, visible assemblies. And Paul says, it's just like your physical body. You've got parts and pieces Arms, hands, eyes, nose, ears, livers, uh, you know, feet, all kinds of different functions, but one body. And all of those individually, they wouldn't do a thing. But when they're assembled together in the body, they function for the good of the whole. And he says, so are we as a church. And Paul writes to the church in Corinth, and he says, Ye the me- are, me- are, are the church of God in Corinth and members in particular. All of you have a different job to do. And he says the same in Romans. He says, we are many members in one body, and all the members don't have the same office. You don't have the same job, but we being many are one body in Christ, and everyone members one of another. And then he says, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given us. He talks about prophesying. He talks about ministry. He talks about teaching. He talks about exhorting. He talks about giving. He talks about ruling and showing mercy and all of those things. These are all different functions and different gifts that God has given to individual members to be used in the New Testament church to serve the Lord and to build the body and to edify Christ. Okay, So that's how we know he's talking about a New Testament church. But then he goes back even further and he starts with the base, the root of it all. And that is the fact that we are accountable to God. And he says in verse 1, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. I'm beseeching you on the basis of the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that ye may prove or live out what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And you know what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God? To serve the Lord through the local New Testament church. That's the whole context here that Paul is dealing with. And he says, I beseech you on the basis of the mercies of God. Why don't you go back to chapter 11 and verse 32 and note, uh, and note this in verse 32. For God hath concluded them all in unbelief, that he might have mercy upon all. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Who hath known the mind of the Lord, who hath been his counselor, who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And then he says, I beseech you, based on the mercy of God. Verse 32 said, God has concluded all in unbelief so that he could have mercy on all. You know what? You're saved today only by the mercy of God. You're here today only by the mercy of God. Even if you're not saved, you're alive today because of the mercy of God. And so the mercy of God is the root. And Paul says, uh, 
uh, unto Christ be glory in everything. Unto Him be glory in all things. And you bring glory to God through your life, through the New Testament church. And so I'm beseeching you based on the mercy of God that you present your body a living sacrifice to the Lord. And so then he goes on and he talks about, again, giving a summation of the duties of believers inside of the New Testament church. And I said all of that to say he's still on that vein when we come to our text. And part of the duties of believers in the New Testament church is in verse 14. Bless them which persecute you. Bless and curse not. Rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. I want to talk to you today about a selfless attitude. A selfless attitude. And these things are all combined, all tied together with this idea of being selfless. Let's pray and then we'll begin. Lord, I pray that you'd help us today with your word. And Lord, we need your spirit to give us understanding. Lord, I need your spirit to be able to preach. And I ask, Lord, that you would um, give us all that we need through the spirit of God today. And Lord, we also need you to help us, Lord, to apply these truths in our life. And so, Lord, we we ask today that you would uh, help us. And Lord, that you would uh, cause us, Lord, to be surrendered and submitted to your will. And Lord, may we have the heart and mind Lord, as you speak, I want to respond. I want to be pleasing in your sight. So we ask, Lord, for your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. So we find a few things here in this passage of Scripture that are really tied to our service to the Lord in the New Testament church, our duties as Christians. And he says, bless them which persecute you. Bless and curse not. Now, when we talk about this issue of persecution, uh, most of us, and I would probably dare say all of us, have not experienced anything uh, comparable to the persecution of Christian people in other countries of the world. Um, the extent of our persecution might be something like we're discriminated against at work because of our Christian faith. Or it might be perhaps that family members would mock us or even disown us because we follow after Christ. Maybe somebody mocks you or ridicules you in front of others because you believe in God as the creator of all things. And, and you have certain uh, values that you hold to because you find them in the word of God and you're mocked for it. That might be the extent of the persecution that we have faced in America. Far different than others in other countries. And I'm not belittling that kind of persecution, but I think that we'd all readily agree that it doesn't compare to something like seeing your loved ones martyred or having your house burned and being forced to flee with just the clothes on your back. Uh, that kind of persecution. And the truth is, though, no matter what kind of persecution it is, we need to understand how to respond to it in a way that pleases the Lord. And you notice here he talks about persecution in verse 14. 
But then he talks about rejoicing with them that rejoice and weeping with them that weep. And then he says being of the same mind one toward another. And you might think that these are just sort of random thoughts that the Apostle Paul is throwing out there. How does persecution relate to rejoicing with those that rejoice and being of the same mind and so on? Well, these aren't just random thoughts that Paul throws out without any kind of connection. There is a a, a major connection in all of these things, and that connection in these three verses is rooted in a selflessness or a self-denial kind of an attitude. And I say that because we can only bless our persecutors and not curse them if we're more concerned about their eternal welfare than we are with the suffering that we receive. We can only rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who would weep if our focus is off of ourselves and on their situation. Otherwise, we don't care. You ever been in that situation where somebody is overjoyed about something? It's like, I got to tell you what's happened in my life and so on. And we're just like, they're excited about it. We're just like, I don't really care. Why? Because most of the time I'm too concerned about my own life and that doesn't impact me. And so I don't care whether you're rejoicing or not. Well, the Bible says rejoice with them that rejoice. In order to do that... In order to weep with those who would weep, the focus needs to be off of ourselves and on their situation. Do you see the tie of selflessness there? Or how about we can only be of the same mind one with another and not be haughty or wise in our own conceit or our own estimation if our eyes are on the Lord and on others and not on ourselves. We think more highly of ourselves than we ought to when our eyes are... So self is the thread that ties these verses together. And these verses are applicable both to situations that are out there in the world and certainly situations inside of the church. And I want to preach to you on this subject about a selfless uh, attitude. And the, the Bible tells us that the mercies of God are calling upon us to bless our enemies, to sympathize with others, and to practice humility. The mercy of God calls us to do those things, and that's where we're going to go this morning. You can tell a lot about a person by his or her attitude, especially when they're going through difficult times. The test of genuine Christianity and conversion is when our attitudes about things begin to change. And that's especially true when we're treated wrongfully in this life, when our attitude begins to reflect the character of Jesus Christ instead of being controlled by the flesh. And so we're going to talk about these three things. And Paul's first command here we find in this passage isn't an easy one, but it's one that we need if we want to be like Christ. He says, the mercy of God calls us to bless our persecutors. Look at that. Bless them that persecute you. Bless and curse not. This verse assumes that there is going to be persecution in the life of a believer. Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 12, All they that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. The reason people persecute Christians is that people hate God. And we represent God to them. 
Even if we are doing what is right, they'll hate us for it. The Bible says so. We ought not to be surprised if some strange thing happens to us in that regard. Look at 1 Peter chapter 3. First Peter chapter 3 and verse 13. The Bible says, And who is he that will harm you if ye be followers of that which is good? But and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be ye troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. For it is better if the will of God be so that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. And so Peter says, if you suffer for righteousness sake, you ought to be happy about that because you're representing Jesus Christ. And so rather than wonder what's going on, when others mistreat us because of our faith, we should expect that. And if they hated the Lord, they're certainly going to hate us. That's what John 15 and verse 18 says. Now, that was part of the equation. Because that issue of persecution isn't always just outside of the church. Paul's talking to church members here. And he says to bless them that persecute you, bless and curse not. I want you to understand the meaning of those words, the word bless there. It has the idea of saying kind things about another or to invoke blessing. Okay? The word persecute is the Greek word diako. It has a sense ranging from literal persecution to simple harassment. The natural tendency when others harass or to persecute is to retaliate. And so he says, rather than retaliate when there is this harassment or this persecution in your life, he says, bless them. And again, it has the idea of saying kind things about another or to invoke blessing. And then he says in verse 14, and curse not. The word curse there has the sense of to speak evil against. All right? So he's saying, say kind things about those who harass you or who are persecuting you and don't speak evil against them. So Paul doesn't mean don't swear at them. That's not what the word curse means. But rather, he's talking about not calling down some sort of evil on him from God. In other words, we shouldn't wish that the persecutor rots because of what they did to me. That's what he's talking about. Instead, it's not enough just to refrain from retaliating or to get rid of that, of that desire for vengeance toward another. Rather, he says, you ought to ask God to bless them instead. As you have opportunity, we ought to seek ways of helping even the ones who wrong us. We should not speak evil about them or get delight in thinking evil things concerning them or things that could happen to them. We should bless them. Needless to say, that's not a natural or easy thing to do. 
But that's the command of the Lord. Paul is reflecting the words of Jesus himself. Look at Matthew chapter 5. Hold your place here and look at Matthew chapter 5. In verse 44, Jesus says, But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them that which despitefully use you and persecute you. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus puts it this way. Go there to Luke chapter 6, and I want you to look at verse 27. Luke 6 and verse 27. But I say unto you which hear, love your enemies, do good to them which hate you, bless them that curse you, and pray for them which despitefully use you. A few verses later, look at verse 35. Jesus adds this, but love your enemies and do good and lend, hoping for nothing again, and your reward shall be great, and ye shall be the children of the highest. For he is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil. Be ye therefore merciful, as your Father also is merciful. Judge not, and ye shall not be judged. Condemn not, and ye shall not be condemned. Forgive, and ye shall be forgiven. And so Jesus says here to love your enemies, to do good. And then he notes that God is kind even to the unthankful and to the evil, too. God is kind to everyone. In Matthew chapter 5, and verse 11, Jesus says, Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Those were Jesus' words. The Apostle Paul regarding his own ministry, said in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, in verse 12, I'll just read it to you. 1 Corinthians 4, 12, Paul says this, he says, And labor, working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we suffer it. Being defamed, we entreat. We are made as the filth of the world and are the offscouring of all things unto this day. I write not these things to shame you, but as my beloved sons I warn you. For though ye have ten thousand instructors in Christ, that ye have not many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. And then he says, Wherefore, brethren, I beseech you to be followers of me. He said, We're reviled and we're persecuted. And we suffer. And he says, Also, brethren, you ought to be followers of me in this regard. Peter said that we're going to face evil, and he said that our response to evil should be something like this. In 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, Peter says, "...not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise, blessing, knowing that ye are thereunto called that ye should inherit." A blessing. And so, as we go back to our text and we see Paul's command here and duties of the New Testament church to bless them which persecute you, bless and curse not, the application of that whole thing is, is this. We looked at several passages of Scripture there. We looked at the life of Jesus. We looked at the Apostle Paul. We looked at Peter. 
and so on. And we find there's a uniform teaching in the New Testament that runs contrary to what our natural reaction is when we're mistreated. How do you feel when somebody mistreats you? What do you want to do? You want to get back at them. You want to set the record straight. You feel misunderstood. You feel hurt. But we're to respond not only by not retaliating, but to respond positively by blessing those who, cur- who, who persecute us. And the reason that we should seek to respond this way by blessing is that we are seeking to reflect the character of Christ to others. How did Jesus respond when he was persecuted? A great help in obeying this command Because people are going to mistreat us. People are going to say wrong things. People are going to behave in ways that are offensive. People are going to do that. And it can happen inside of a church. And we can start to get a little bit of a... towards people. A little bit of an attitude like I know about them. And I just... I don't even like to look at them. I don't like it when they're around. I don't want to talk to them. We can start to develop that kind of an attitude because we feel like we've been mistreated at some point. It's hard to respond rightly with mercy and with love and to, in fact, to bless them that persecute us, to not speak evil against them. You know, remember the definition of the word. We like to do that. We like to commiserate. We like to get people to hear how we've been mistreated. And so we like to talk about it. Or do you understand this? Do you understand what I'm saying? That's how our flesh wants to respond. But the Bible says to bless them. Don't speak evil of them. In fact, do the opposite of retaliating. Find ways to ask the Lord to bring blessing into their life. That's not easy to do, and a great help in obeying that command is to keep in mind this. That God was gracious to me when I was undeserving and when I was a sinner. God continued to be gracious to me. Even when I sin, after I'm His child, God is still gracious to me. And Jesus said, Himself, that he was kind to those who were evil and to ungrateful men. The transformed attitude, present your bodies, a living sacrifice, be renewed in your mind, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That attitude that we are to reflect can only be because of God's help, number one. And remembering that God was gracious to me. God was merciful to me when I was his enemy. And I need to bless those who've treated me wrongfully. That takes a selfless attitude. A selfless heart. Because when we feel like we've been mistreated, when we feel like we've been hurt, and our focus is on my hurt and on my feelings, we're not going to respond in a godly or Christ-like way that we ought to, because our focus is all inward. Does that make sense? 
So Paul says, our duty here is to bless them that persecute you. Bless and curse not. Then he says in verse 15, rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. Again, this requires a selfless attitude. And the mercy of God calls on us to sympathize with others. Bless them, or rejoice with them, rather, that do rejoice, and weep with them that weep. This command, that maybe not, it might not be as difficult as verse 14, to bless our enemies or those that persecute us, but it's still not easy because it requires self-denial. So, the Bible is telling us that we ought to enter into the joys and the sorrows of our brethren. And we cannot do that if we have all the focus on our own selves. You've got to tune in. And you've got to really listen to what your brother or sister is saying or what's going on in their life. You have to do that both verbally and non-verbally. You have to take an interest in others. You have to take the time to try to understand where other people are coming from and what they're going through in their life. Most of the time we've got this idea already of how people are. I already got a pretty good idea of what this person's character is like. I've got a good idea of what this kind of... And you know what? People might want to come up and they want to share something and they want to talk. And our mind goes to, oh great, I've got to listen to this again. And we might stand there, we might be just like, you know, uh, giving lip service and we might be putting on this, this show of like, oh yeah, like I'm really interested, but our mind is a million miles away. Or a mind is like, I, don't, I just can't wait for this to be done. I can't wait for you to be done talking so I can go on and do my own thing. Or we greet one another in the church. We come and we shake your hand and say, hey, brother, how you doing? But we don't actually mean that. I just want to keep on moving, but I know I need to greet this person and so on. But you know what? There's something that is very connecting and something that's very bonding and something that's very helpful and encouraging in the lives of brothers and sisters. When we go and we greet one another, we reach out our hand and say, how you doing, brother? And now I'm tuning in and I want to listen to what you have to say. And every church has those that like, oh, it's that person. Oh, I've got to listen to them drone on and on and on and on and on. And take no interest at all and what's happening in their life. The Word of God says, we're to rejoice with them that rejoice and weep with them that weep. You know what that means? That we actually have to be involved and understand and know what's going on in someone's life. I mentioned it earlier, you know, Maybe you've been in this situation before where someone is like, they're overjoyed about something that's happened in their life. But because it means nothing to you and it doesn't affect your life in any way, the attitude behind it is like, I just don't really care. You read something on Facebook, you read something on Instagram, and someone's like typing it out, put out, hey, this is what happened. They're so excited about it. And I was like, eh, I don't care. Well, it could be true. And some facets and some situations. But it's better to understand what's happening in someone's life. And like, there's some real, 
good things that are happening. There's some life changes going on. There's some, like, some, there's some breakthroughs. There's some, there's some all kinds of stuff, and it's, it's exciting, and it's intimidating, and it's, it's scary all at the same time, but I don't take any interest. And there's no words of like, hey, good job. Man, that's amazing. That's, I can understand why you feel that way. And you might be fearful about this, but you know what God's going to provide? That's really exciting. Praise the Lord. You know how you feel when somebody shows interest in your life and you want to share something and they're like, whoa, that is amazing. That is really exciting. I am so proud of you. I'm so happy for you. Makes me feel kind of Someone took interest. But when we're so self-centered and our life is all built around how I feel and what I think and what's happening in my life, like, ah, that's good. Couldn't really care less. That is not the character of Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus Christ went about doing good and took the time for all kinds of people. What I'm just saying is, the mercy of God in your life calls on you and I to be sympathetic with others, to rejoice with those that rejoice. You know what, that might sound pretty easy, but it's often difficult. Because we have a self-centered life, and some people think that Paul put it first because it's the more difficult even of the two commands. I think we can naturally weep with those who weep, like somebody experiences some tragedy in their life, they lose a loved one, or some terrible thing, and it just naturally would pull at the heartstrings, and we could feel sorrow with them, and so on. I think we could probably more easily weep with those who weep when terrible situations happen. Why is it that it's harder for us to rejoice with those that rejoice. Most of the time, because of envy and pride and a spirit of competition, it can keep us from rejoicing with those who rejoice. I am glad for you that God is using you in this way. I am glad for you that God was able to take you and do this in your life. I am so glad for you that it seems like God is really blessing you and providing for you and leading you. I can be so glad for you because God is doing that. But because of envy, or because of pride, or because of a spirit of competition, or jealousy, right? It's harder for us to rejoice with those that are rejoicing. It takes selflessness, and it takes grace to truly rejoice with others. But you know what? If we love one another, and if we really have a heart of love that wants to build and edify and grow each other in the Lord, it's not going to be a problem to be able to rejoice when God is actually blessing their life. Because my heart toward you is that I want to avoid anything that is evil or anything. What does he say in verse 9? Let love be without dissimulation. Don't let it be fake. Abhor that which is evil. I don't want anything that is evil in your life to come from me. In fact, cleave to that which is good. I only want your good and your well-being. That's what I desire most. 
Self is always the major problem that we have to battle. To weep with those who weep, that can also be difficult. Because what do you say in situations and in times when someone's hurting? And you feel obligated or you feel awkward about it and feel like we might need to say something wise or say something appropriate for this time. But you know what? You often end up saying something that you shouldn't say or you make yourself look stupid. Sometimes it's better to just sit and to sympathize and to be quiet and to just let your brother or sister know I'm here. You remember Job's three friends? After Job experienced all of his troubles, the Bible says that they sat silently with him for a week. They did better when they sat silently with him for a week. Because then they all started talking after that. And that's where they got themselves in trouble. They tried to explain to him why he was suffering and so on. Fewer words are often better and wiser than more words. Somebody, sometimes somebody wants to come and say something that's just the right thing and say an appropriate thing in those moments. And there's, there's a time for that. The Bible speaks of it for sure. But many times it's not rooted in, I want to encourage you. Many times it's rooted in, I just want to feel like I said something appropriate or wise that was helpful. Paul doesn't say, counsel with those who weep. He says, weep with those who are weep. Doesn't he? To sympathize. To feel it. There's a story about a little girl who lost her best friend in death. And one day she told her parents that she had gone over to comfort the grieving mother of her best friend. And the parents said, well, what did, what did you say? And she told her parents, I didn't say anything. I didn't say anything at all. I just climbed up in her lap and cried with her. That's all I did. That is a wise comforter. There's another story about a man who lost three of his seven children in death. And he wrote these words. He said, I was sitting, torn by grief. Someone came and talked to me of God's dealings, of why it happened, of hope beyond the grave. He talks constantly. He said things that I knew were true, but I was unmoved, except to wish that he'd just go away. And he finally did. But then there was another that came and sat beside me. He didn't talk. He didn't ask me leading questions. He just sat beside me for an hour or more, listened when I said something, answered briefly, prayed, and then simply left. I was moved. I was comforted. I hated to see him go. That's the kind of selfless spirit that causes us to Weep with those who would weep. The mercy of God.
calls us to sympathize with others in both their joys and their sorrows, but it requires the removal of self as the focus. When self is the focus, we don't care about what others may be going through, nor do we try to understand where they're coming from. We only want to get our points across rather than really understand where someone else is coming from. The tendency is to brush it aside or to feel no sympathy when we might have an opportunity to be a blessing just by simply being able to understand. Understand where they're coming from. But so many times we're so filled up with self that we fail to heed the command to rejoice with those who rejoice, to weep with those who would weep. That talks about brotherliness. It talks about family. That talks about being in tune and in touch and understanding one another. And then we find the last in verse 16. He says, Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. The mercy of God thirdly calls us to practice humility. Calls us to humility. Paul keeps hammering on this theme of humility, actually. He's mentioned it several times. The command to be of the same mind one toward another is a command that Paul often repeated um, in his letters to churches and even to the church at Rome, especially in chapter 15 and verse 5. He says, Now the God of patience and consolation grants you to be like-minded one toward another according to Christ Jesus. Again, this being of the same mind one toward another. He repeats that idea several times in Philippians. Philippians chapter 1. Again, these are examples of Paul writing to churches, to specific bodies. And he says in Philippians 1 in verse 27, "...only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent..." I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. He says in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 2, Fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. He says in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 2, I beseech Eodius and beseech Syntyche that ye be of the same mind in the Lord. You can read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where Paul says in verse 10 to the church at Corinth, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, In verse 10, Therefore I write these things, being absent, lest being present I should use sharpness according to the power which the Lord hath given me to edification and not to destruction. That's not the right verse. Um, 
his instruction. Where is it? There it is in verse 11. Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace shall be with you. Over and over again, Paul talks about this idea of being of the same mind one toward another. He's talking to individual churches and members in particular inside of those churches. The same principle applies for this body and in this church. Paul's not insisting, when he says be of the same mind, he's not insisting that we all think alike or that we all agree on every single issue. That's not going to happen in life. That's not what he's saying. Rather, what he is saying is he's calling us to unity based on our common salvation based on our shared purpose in the gospel and based on our shared hope in Christ, that we be of the same mind, that we have the same thinking, the same idea as far as what our purpose is and what our mission is and what our heart towards one another ought to be, even when sometimes we might not agree on every single issue. Now, if it's doctrine and the Word of God spells it out, we ought to agree on the, on the issue, amen? But there are life things, or preferences, and other things that we may not exactly see eye to eye on. But Paul says, listen, the heart of love that you have, one for another and for Christ, ought to compel you. Listen, we're going in the same direction. We're on the same team. Amen? And then Paul says in our text, not only be of the same mind, but he says, mind not high things but condescend to men of low estate. This could refer to people or things. The verb condescend here literally means to be carried away by, and it has the idea of of a flood that comes and sweeps things away. And so Paul is saying here, condescend to men of low estate, be carried away by, uh, the same uh, Greek word is used in Galatians chapter 2. Galatians 2, look at, it, look at it with me in verse 13. And the other Jews dissembled likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation. He got caught up in the moment, caught up in the crowd. He was carried away. The idea is in 2 Peter chapter 3 is is another uh, instance where this same word is used. 2 Peter chapter 3 in verse 17, for it is better if the will of God be so that ye suffer for well-doing. Is that 2 Peter? I'm in 1 Peter, sorry. 2 Peter chapter 3. Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware, lest ye also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. Here's another situation where you're being caught up or carried away. That's how the word is used in our text, to condescend to men of low estate. And so the idea that Paul is presenting here is to not resist uh, doing or uh, things that are lowly tasks. He says, condescend to men of low estate, but rather be carried away with doing those things to bless others. And the idea here is, listen, 
I, he, he says, don't, don't think of yourself uh, more highly than you ought to. Don't be wise in your own conceits. Don't, don't have a self-evaluation that elevates you, but rather be carried away with doing good for others. Be carried away with, with service to others, no matter what that is. Condescend to men of low estate. The idea here is, you know what? <coughs> There's nothing that should be beneath me. Don't resist the idea of doing a lowly task, like, but, but carry it out with the idea of being a blessing to others. You know what? You see some trash on the floor? Pick it up and throw it away. Just to be a blessing. Oh, that's somebody else's job to clean up those things. You see trash bags that are full over in the fellowship hall? Oh, that's so-and-so's job. Or that's Team Three's job. Pick it up, tie it up, take it out to the garbage can. Why? There's nothing that's beneath me. Be carried away with service. Be carried away with doing good. Be carried away with being selfless. There might be times when we interact with people and for some reason or other, we might feel like these people are beneath my level. You understand what I'm talking about? There's somebody who's not as smart as me, somebody who's got a little bit of a problem, or somebody I just don't really like. These people are beneath my level. Rather than having a self-evaluation that exalts me above somebody else's level, we ought to reach out in love and make people feel accepted, make people feel loved, make people feel like you're paying attention, that you want them in your life. But oftentimes we size people up and we judge, and we become the standard of judgment. There was one time when I went to this meeting. I think I was an assistant pastor. Definitely been beneath other people's level, right? As an assistant. I was at this meeting and happened to be walking from lunch or something in the hallway. And there was this pastor of this church. It was a bigger church. I just wanted to be friendly. I just wanted, I'd never met him before. And so I just, as we were walking by, I reached out and I went to shake his hand and introduced myself. And he just, he had two or three or four other people around him who were all walking with him, kind of like an entourage almost. And he just looks at me and he's just like, huh, okay. And then he proceeded to walk on. And I was just like, wow, that's rude. And it really made me feel like he didn't have the time of day for somebody he didn't know, somebody who was an assistant pastor, somebody who wasn't on his level. 
that's how it made me feel. And I was just like, well, <laughs> okay then. We're not really going to be friends probably, but okay. And that's fine. You know, I got over myself at that moment and moved on. But you know what? I, I decided, I decided I don't want to treat people that way. I want people to know that I love them, that I care for their soul, that I care for them as people. And I don't know your situation all the time, but I want to understand it. And if I can help you, I want to. I want to rejoice with you when good things are happening in your life. I want to take interest in you so that when you are hurting, I hurt too. I want people to feel accepted and loved. And like I'm taking interest in their life. That's how I want to be. Why? Because that's how Christ was. That's who Jesus was. And Paul says, in the church, in the church, that is all of our jobs. One with another. Rather than sizing people up and judging, instead, why don't we just put ourselves on the same level? Why don't we try to relate graciously to them as you would want to be related to if you were in their shoes? And again, that requires the removal of self. The last thing that Paul says is don't be wise in your own conceit or yourself. It comes from Proverbs chapter 3 in verse 7 that says, Be not wise in thine own eyes, fear the Lord, and depart from evil. One man said this, The person who is wise in his own eyes is rarely so in the eyes of other people. Even some unbelievers get this. Uh, there are, <laughs> I read this, Jay Leno, remember the Jay Leno show? One time on the Jay Leno show, he said this. I think the key to life is having low self-esteem, believing you're not the smartest or most handsome person in the room. All the people who have high self-esteem are either criminals or actors or fakes. <laughs> we can, we can kind of come across that way sometimes. Like we know everything and we're the smartest guy in the room and we become wise and I know, I know these things. I, I know what I know. You don't know as much as me or you don't notice as much as me and those kinds of things. And listen, Paul is warning us of the danger of intellectual pride. It is the sin that Paul referred to in Romans chapter 1 when he said there are those who hold the truth or suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And then he says they profess themselves to be wise, but they end up becoming fools. The person who is wise in his own eyes is rarely so in the eyes of others. Humility requires the removal of self as well. Jeremiah chapter 9, I'll read this last verse and we'll be done, but it it really does give us perspective. 
for life and where we ought to be as people. Jeremiah chapter 9, and I want you to look at verse 23. Thus saith the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me, that I am the Lord, which exercises loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, saith the Lord. In other words, Jeremiah is, is stating, if I'm going to glory in anything at all as a person, I ought to glory in the fact that I get the chance to know God, that He has been merciful to me. He's my Savior. He's my friend. If I'm going to glory in anything, it ought to be in that, that He has saved my soul. Humility requires the removal of self. Selflessness is the tie for all of these verses here. It's what life should look like for a Christian inside of a church and because of the grace of God. So, in conclusion, are you blessing those who've wronged you? Are you sympathizing with others in their joys and their sorrows? Are you practicing humility in your Christian life, in Christian unity? Being quick to take on the lowly job to prefer others better than or above yourself, to befriend people who are of no earthly status, who aren't going to benefit you? Are you humble, not impressed with your own wisdom? These are all the areas of life that we need reminders in and to be growing in in the image of Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you'd challenge us, that you have challenged us with your word today. And Lord, that we'd have a humble response toward you as you speak. And there's some highlighted area of life. Lord, I pray that we'd, in humility, yield it and surrender it to you. And Lord, have the desire, I want to be more like Jesus Christ. Less of me, more of him. And may it reflect in the way that I treat and respond to other people. In Jesus' name, amen.